It's the most important night of the year. Everyone who is anyone is here and dressed to impress. People will be talking about the looks, the jokes, and the outcome of this event for the next year. There have been triumphs and tragedies, careers made and broken on this stage. As you step onto that stage and into the spotlight, you have one task. To declare the best. Hundreds sit in the audience just beyond the blinding lights and millions more watch at home. They're asking the same question. The answer rests literally in your hands. Open the envelope to see the best picture winner for the 1999 Academy Awards. And the winner is... Wait a second, is this right? I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. Harvey Weinstein is a terrible person. This is not a controversial statement. If you want to argue with me on this, you're welcome to meet me in the Denny's parking lot. You know the one. He's a sexual predator who used his power to abuse and rape dozens of women. His arrest and conviction for these crimes was one of the greatest successes of the early Me Too movement in 2017. He's a despicable person, and I want to add one more infraction to his record. No, Two more. Before I make my case, how about we do a short perp walk through the Weinstein legacy? Yeah, even the good parts. Weinstein founded the production and distribution company Miramax with his brother in 1979. Until the company was purchased by Disney in 1993, Miramax produced and distributed independent movies. Many of these movies became some of the most beloved cult films of all time, Movies like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Clerks. And some of those movies became Tom and Jerry the Movie, a soul-crushing Henry Mancini musical with voices for the titular characters that sounded like a cheap tertiary market overdub. Look, they can't all be winners. But many of them were. Critically, anyway. Until Disney came along, the only real blockbuster Bob and Harvey had was, can't make this up, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which they distributed in 1989. The same year that they sold to Disney, however, they distributed critically acclaimed New Zealand film The Piano, then Train Spotting, The English Patient, and Goodwill Hunting. After a string of successes, in 1998, Miramax was in a bit of a slump. That's when Weinstein bet everything on their latest movie, Shakespeare in Love. That's when Harvey Weinstein killed the Oscars. Charge number one. Weinstein secured a Best Picture nomination for Shakespeare in Love, which was an accomplishment in itself. But this wouldn't be an easy win. It was a stacked category that year, and many considered Shakespeare in Love the weakest entry. The fellow nominees were Elizabeth, which shared the same time period, location, and several characters with Shakespeare in Love, as well as The Thin Red Line and Life is Beautiful, both of which were receiving glowing reviews. There was also a little film you might have heard of called Saving Private Ryan. 
Saving Private Ryan was a critical darling and a box office smash. It was all anyone could talk about going into the 1999 Academy Awards. The Washington Post review said, There are movies, and then there are movies. And then there is Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. This is one of the great American movies. For months, it was the clear favorite to win Best Picture. Many considered it the only choice. And then it lost. Because of Harvey Weinstein. Okay, of course Weinstein didn't invent campaigning for awards. But he did invent the modern Oscar campaign. Much like the man himself, his methods were ruthless and brutal. Unfortunately, they were also shockingly effective. Weinstein's methods boiled down to two main ideas. Get people to see your movie, and keep people talking about your movie. The first is pretty self-explanatory. People don't vote for movies they haven't seen. Cultural landmarks like Saving Private Ryan didn't have this problem, because everyone was already lining up to see it for the second time. For Shakespeare and Love, Weinstein had to get creative. He would target specific voting members of the Academy and make sure his movie was playing near them. If you went skiing in Aspen, there was a special screening in Aspen. Vacationing in Oahu, special screening in Oahu. Apple picking in middle of nowhere Vermont, well, wouldn't you know it, there's a special screening happening there too. He would also have screenings done at the Motion Picture Retirement Home because, hey, they have Academy members living there. If you could vote, Weinstein would find a way to make sure you saw his film, even going so far as to personally call well over 100 individual voters every year. Once an Academy member saw the film, it was time to move on to phase two. Miramax would use press relationships to keep their films on everyone's mind. The LA Times said Miramax was the best at inspiring the media to write and broadcast stories about their films and actors even going so far as to provide story ideas to major publications. In 1997, Miramax ads accounted for 40% of the Oscar ads published in Variety magazine. They would also expose their actors to the press and, of course, voters by throwing lavish parties and other events. One of the most infamous was when Weinstein got Daniel Day-Lewis, an able-bodied man, to appear in front of Congress in support for the Americans Against Disability Act. At the time, Day-Lewis was promoting his film My Left Foot, in which he played a man with cerebral palsy. He later won Best Actor for this role. It was bold, it was absurd, it was, in some cases, technically illegal, and people took notice. In 1999, Time Magazine wrote that the fact that movie people even think there's a horse race is mostly a tribute to Weinstein's entrepreneurial savvy where most independent studios would spend around a quarter million on an Oscar campaign, Miramax is estimated to have spent at least $5 million. They hired publicists, who just so happened to be Academy members, to sweet-talk other Oscar voters, not just for the five months that were considered Oscar season, but year-round. At the time, this was unheard of. The Weinstein Oscar strategy was built on the foundation of common knowledge. It isn't important for Academy voters to think that the movie is the best or most deserving. What is important is that Academy voters think that everyone else thinks that the movie is the best or most deserving. But it worked. Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan. 
Weinstein accepted the Oscar himself. As the saying goes, in Academy Award speeches, Harvey Weinstein has been thanked more times than God. And winning an Academy Award can double a film's profits. Most of Miramax's films made more money after award nominations. So it makes sense that Academy Award recognition soon became their primary goal. Not because they wanted to create real art that would stand the test of time. Of course not. They wanted money. This success changed the film industry and how they saw awards. This showed them that the award system is a sham, that the Academy is primarily made of older white men who will all vote the same way, that the people promoting and creating films shouldn't be the ones voting, that money can't be allowed to dictate quality. I'm kidding. Like the herd of toddlers that they are, they learned the exact opposite. The sad reality is this drove home that you don't need to have the best film to win. You need the best narrative. When the industry saw what worked, they copied Weinstein's methods. Campaign budgets now regularly exceed 20 million, and aggressive, in-your-face tactics are the norm. You go to Los Angeles around award season, you won't be able to go anywhere without seeing an FYC, or For Your Consideration, banner or billboard. Campaigning has started earlier and earlier, until now, it's pretty much a constant state of being. So, yes, my first charge against Weinstein is that he permanently ruined award shows and anything authentically interesting about them. But that barely registers on his rap sheet. So let me level my second charge. By breaking the award show, Harvey Weinstein broke filmmaking too. Because of Harvey Weinstein, everybody knows that everybody knows that an award nomination can create $15 million in box office revenue, and that a win can generate about $10 million more. Everybody also knows that everybody knows that award nominations are about creating a narrative. So what does that get you? The emergence of an entirely new class of art. Films written, cast, produced, directed, and marketed not to reflect any particular philosophy or aesthetic, but to best approximate the archetype of an Oscar-worthy film. This is why studios create prestige films and Oscar-bait movies. An endlessly creative range of options for studios has been condensed into only two. You can produce a low-budget film to win awards and gain prestige, or you can light some of Disney's money on fire to create the next blockbuster. The evidence of the emergence of the Oscar-worthy film abstraction has piled up mostly in the last 15 years. Back in the 1990s and early 2000s, popular movies would regularly be nominated and even win Best Picture. Perfect, iconic, flawless movies like Moulin Rouge and, all right, movies like the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy were nominated. Return of the King won. The movie that won just before Shakespeare in Love was Titanic. There wasn't a significant disconnect between what the average American liked and what the Academy voters liked. But from the mid-aughts to the present, the movies that were nominated and won Best Picture were films most people hadn't seen. After all, the normal viewer didn't have showings coincidentally following their every move or people calling to invite them to lavish viewing parties. It's now considered an anomaly for a popular movie to be nominated for Best Picture, 
let alone be seen as a serious contender. Mad Max Fury Road and Black Panther are two of the most recent examples of popular movies that do well at the box office and were also nominated for Best Picture. But neither was ever talked about as a possible winner. Apparently, bright colors and big explosions are an automatic disqualification. Instead, they lost to Spotlight and Green Book. Green Book. Have you ever seen Green Book? Has anyone ever seen Green Book? So how does the age of movies made to look like an Oscar-worthy movie end? Does it end through the indifference of an audience at home watching the awards ceremony that hasn't seen any of the movies that are nominated? Maybe. Oscar viewership is at an all-time low and falls every year. But they can still root for the larger narrative surrounding the movie or the actor. Will Glenn Close finally get her Oscar? Why are animated movies put in a separate category, but Toy Story 3 still got a Best Picture nomination? When will we finally have a category for Best Stunts? Will it end with a shameless campaign that goes just a little too far? Maybe. Surely you've heard of Emily in Paris. Wait, you mean you're not a 20-something woman who's seen all of Gossip Girl more than once? Well, to summarize, Emily in Paris is a 2020 Netflix comedy from the creator of Sex and the City. It gained national attention and was one of the most watched series of 2020. It was an overnight sensation because it was terrible. Critics and casual viewers alike hated the show and found it insulting, racist, and worst of all, unfunny. The top Google result for Emily in Paris is why is Emily in Paris bad? So when it was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Television Series, Musical, or Comedy, everyone knew something was wrong. The show was so bad, the LA Times immediately launched an investigation because they did not believe the show could have earned that nomination through merit. And they were right. The investigation revealed that the producers of Emily in Paris had invited 30 voting members of the Hollywood Foreign Press to visit the set in Paris. There, they were given a free vacation in Paris and tours of the set. The show hadn't even started airing. It hadn't even finished production, but the studio was already campaigning. It sort of worked. They got the nomination, but no win. In this case, no amount of aggressive campaigning could make up for a bad product. But the fact that they were confident enough to try says a lot about the current attitudes towards award campaigns and even more about the unpleasant legacy Harvey Weinstein has left us. Any amount of time hearing about Harvey Weinstein will always be a little bit cursed, but now you are also cursed with the knowledge that he is also responsible for changing not only the way that film awards work, but creating the world in which the only kinds of movies that get made are blockbusters or Oscar bait. I hope you learned something new, and please remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting coworkers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell us some of your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at epsilontheory.com.
know 3% of the ice in Antarctica is penguin pee? 